BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. That's right. Bill Press show. Good morning. Good morning on this September 15th, 2016, a Friday. I'm Igor Volsky of the Center for American Progress Action Fund filling in for Bill on what was, I think, mostly a quiet week, thankfully, in the news. I mean, there's I, I don't know. No, no. I felt I felt it was I felt it was quieter than usual, Jamie. Despite the fact, lots of big stuff, though. I mean, you have the the single payer announcement. You have Trump on uh, the hurricane on DACA, the deal with the Democrats. Okay, fine. Sorry. Okay, we'll get we'll get into great detail about the Bernie Sanders single payer healthcare plan because it's not the only universal healthcare proposal that Democrats are putting forward. There's going to be a slew of new bills. Uh, put forward by senators like Chris Murphy uh, and Brian Schatz uh, and a couple of others that ask the question, how do we cover uh, the remaining uh, 20 million plus Americans who are still uninsured? And so we're going to have a big health care conversation this morning with uh, health care political reporter Paul Demko. Go through some of those measures and um, really outline how Democrats are are starting to build an entirely new health care agenda that's going to be based on achieving universal health care. I think it's a debate the party really has to have, and I'm happy that they're having it now ahead of laying out political platforms. So we'll get into that and all of these big events that Jamie reminds me. Hillary uh, came out with her book, too. Hillary that was came one. out with the book. That's right. Okay, lots of things happened this week. Um, we'll, we'll talk about all of it here on the Bill Press Show, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Friday morning. We begin with some breaking news overnight. From London, England, a rush hour blast causing an improvised explosive, caused by an improvised explosive device on the London Underground. 18 people are injured. It is being treated as terrorism by London's Metropolitan Police. Very scary. The blast occurred at about 8.20 in the morning, local time, 3.20 a.m. Eastern here in the U.S. on a very busy commuter line into central London. The good news is is that none of the 18 injured are thought to be in serious or life-threatening condition. Good. Just You hear about these stories out of London every once in a while, every couple of years, and you just... You think about what if something like that happened uh, on a subway system in America. And what what would you do? How would you react? My goodness. Exactly. Uh, To the sports world, well, we'll do sports and politics here, Igor. I won't drag you too far into the sports world. 
ESPN had a bit of a controversy this week, if you followed this. Think Progress was following it, our friend Lindsey <laughs> Gibbs. Uh, of course, ESPN anchor Jamel Hill had tweeted that Donald Trump was, quote, a white supremacist president. Not wrong. Uh, ESPN. <laughs> Fact check true. ESPN was very upset and said that they, well, scolded her. Hill stood by her words, but said she felt that it reflected poorly on her employer and she regretted that. Lindsey Gibbs in Think Progress reporting yesterday that ESPN originally tried to keep her off the air on oh, Wednesday yeah. night, the day after the apology came. In fact, not only did they try to keep her off the air, they tried to replace her and her co-host, Michael Smith, who are both African-American, with two other African-American anchors, Michael Eves and L. Duncan. Eves and Duncan both declined to fill in for Hill and Smith. Good for them. Good for them. ESPN uh, denying this, their communications chief tweeting uh, late yesterday, quote, we never asked any other anchors to do last night's show, period. Um, when you echo white supremacist rhetoric at political rallies, it's fair to describe you perhaps yeah. as a white supremacist. And as we had to clarify earlier this week on the show, she did not do this on air. She didn't do this during a sports broadcast. This was on her own personal Twitter She's entitled to her own opinions as an American. I stand by that, and good <laughs> for her. I watch Sports Center all week this week because of Jamel. All right, I won't. <laughs> On your radio, on TV, and online, this is the Bill Press Show. All right, Bill Press Show this Friday, September September 15th, 2017, folks. Not 2016 here that I see on the prep. We are firmly now in 2017. Good morning, good morning. Igor Volsky here. Filling in for Bill Press. By the little, way, little fun fact about Igor: he loves throwing producers under the bus. Oh yeah, any chance I get, any chance I get, I just push him over. Uh, uh, by the way, you can check out uh, my podcast, Thinking Cap, uh, that I produce over uh, at the Center for American Progress, Center for American Progress Action Fund. Uh, just go over to iTunes or Apple or Music or wherever you get your um, your podcast. Subscribe there. We talk to the uh, voices uh, that you want to hear from in these crazy political times, break down the complex issues of the day, and then give you a sense of what to do about it, how to uh, how to fight back against all of the crazy. Uh, now, though, it appears here, Jamie, that things may be getting a little less crazy as Donald Trump now for the second week in a row, second week in a row, is at least rhetorically suggesting that maybe he's willing to work with Democrats on a measure to help protect the 800,000, close to 800,000 recipients of DACA. That is that Obama-era program that protected dreamers, immigrants who came to this country uh, as children to protect them from deportation and give them Per, uh, not permanent, unfortunately, but temporary legal status, allowing them to to work in this country, to go to school in this country. Now, of course, it's a problem of the president's own making. So all of this coverage about how 
good he's being in trying to reach across the aisle uh, should be taken with a whole lot of grain of salt, especially on an issue where like 80 percent of Americans believe that dreamers should have a path to citizenship, including a good number of Trump voters. So we'll get into uh, that. We have some sound yesterday from the president because, you know, he had this dinner with with the Democrats. Was it what, Wednesday or Thursday? And Wednesday then evening. Yeah. Wednesday evening. And then this news started to leak out that maybe there's a deal and the right wing just flipped out, started calling him uh, an amnesty president. Uh, he, though, is not backing down. And we'll explore uh, why why that is. Also, we'll get into the great debate uh, that is about to unfold uh, around health care. Now, in Congress, the active debate is focused on how to stabilize the Obamacare insurance markets. There's an effort underway, a bipartisan effort by uh, Lamar Alexander, the senator from Tennessee, and Patty Murray, the senator from Washington state, about trying to craft a narrow measure that would uh, keep uh, uh, premiums and other costs uh, at bay in the existing Obamacare law. But also, at the same time, Democrats led by Bernie Sanders uh, and a couple of others like Chris Murphy and Brian Schatz are introducing new legislation that they claim would truly result in universal health care coverage. That is, provide affordable health insurance coverage to every single American. Uh, Obamacare certainly tried to do that. Uh, but uh, the the measure, partly because Republicans uh, and red states have really done such a poor job of implementing the law and really not just a poor job implementing, but also uh, deliberately, deliberately obstructing it and undermining and undercutting it. And of course, the law itself, we should note, also has its shortcomings, uh, has still left uh, 20 million plus Americans without health care coverage. And so the question that Democrats are now answering in these slew of bills from single payer to Medicare buy-in to Medicaid buy-in is uh, where do we go from here? How do we build uh, on those successes and make sure that everyone has health insurance coverage? We'll get into all of that. You know, another thing yeah. I'd like to talk about today, if that's yes, all right, Jim. and this kind of goes hand in hand with the health care discussion. Oop, there goes my phone. Uh, that was Peter Ogburn retweeting me, by the way. Hello, Peter. Oh, hey, Peter. Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of want to talk about the bickering within the party, just in general. Obviously, Hillary Clinton's book sparked a lot of uh, debate over the past couple of weeks. The book officially coming out on Tuesday. Bill has had uh, quite a week on Twitter from some of our listeners and viewers uh, who disagree with his take on whether or not Hillary Clinton should be uh, out there rehashing the election. So I, is, I think... Is, what does Bill say now? He doesn't think she should be? No, he, he does. Yeah, he doesn't. He, he would prefer that the book had not had never come out. Um, yeah, but a lot of people feel I, I think the book should have come out. Uh, you know, I think, you know, she has a right to, to tell her side of the story, right? Yeah. But it's just endless, endless coverage of this. And it's... It's stoking a lot of... And it's difficult to relive. I mean, I, you know, I haven't really followed it super closely because, you know, it's painful. I heard the podcast that she put out, you know, that that campaign podcast that they updated into the two-part series. Yeah. And the first part talks about uh, the day of the election and what she did and 
how she reacted. And of course, when you hear that, you're automatically transported to where you were and how you felt and how difficult that night and the days that followed were. And, you know, I think part of me does want to relive it in the sense that maybe it provides some greater perspective on the election that was and on the first 200 plus days of this administration. But on the other hand, uh, the 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 pain of it uh, and the discomfort of having to think through those days, uh, I think, makes me somewhat uncomfortable. So I've been dodging really most of the news you know, and that's, about her well, book. But I agree that you know if she if she wants a voice in the armchair quarterbacking that's going on from everybody, then certainly she deserves to have a voice. I don't think there's anything wrong with but that. But that's but that's a good point that we we I don't think we brought this up all week. If if you don't want her to rehash the election, then just don't watch the interview she's given. Don't read the book. Just but stay what's away the, what is the harm of her going out there? Like what, why, how does it, what does it hurt? Who does it hurt? The argument, I, this isn't my personal argument, but the argument I think is, is that she is shifting the blame, thus making it harder for Democrats to reflect on a type of loss like she went through. She does not seem to be giving enough accountability to herself and her campaign uh, for the way that she lost to Donald Trump. Well, that's... I, certainly, certainly there were a lot of other factors. Lots of other factors. But there is, at the end of the day, you're the one that is in charge of your campaign. You do have to take accountability for your loss. And I think that partially she has. By the way, you can weigh in on this uh, on Twitter at BP Show. Also, I'm on Twitter at Igor Volsky, please. And I have my laptop here. We're, at, so we're already actually getting some comments in the YouTube chat room, oh. youtube.com backslash the Bill Press Show. If you're just listening on the radio, want to check us out visually. Uh, Mzora says she has a right to say it. And then <laughs> STFU, because she's a loser. When you lose to a fascist like Donald Trump, what else do I call her? Okay, look. I think there are several buckets here, right, that people talk about when they think about the election. Part of it was Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton's message, Hillary Clinton's campaign. Another part of it was Russian interference. Another part of it was the kind of campaign that Trump ran and the way the media covered it, right? Those are probably the three main buckets of what happened. Oh, and, the, and then FBI and Comey is part of the Russia bucket. Now, the question really and the debate is, what percentage do you assign to each category to add up to 100 percent about why Hillary Clinton lost the election? Now, it's true that Hillary Clinton probably assigns a smaller percentage to herself and to her campaign when thinking about all of the reasons of why she lost. That's because of the perspective that she has. That doesn't mean that she's wrong. There's no right answer. It just means that because she ran the campaign, and because she has a different perspective than all of us, she's going to assign a smaller percentage of blame to herself and a higher percentage to Russia, the media, and all these other factors. You and I and everybody listening may disagree with that, but that doesn't mean that we should shut her up and say, because you you think that you're only 20% to blame instead of 45% to blame, you know, go over there, sit in the corner, and we never want to hear from you again. That, I think, is wrong. But we all agree on the broad categories. I just hope that we don't have the same type of in-party bickering um, on a subject like this. I, I just hope that we don't have that same type of bickering when it comes to something like healthcare, right, that affects millions of Americans. So 
Well, that's why I want to have this open conversation exactly. about what is the best way to get to universal health care coverage. If it is a single payer model, which says we're going to take all of the different health insurance payers that are in the system now and phase them out to have just one payer, the federal government, over a period of five years, which is the Bernie bill. If that's the best way, okay. But if there's a different way, uh, let's explore that as well. Now is the time, I say, to have that debate. Once again, at BP Show on Twitter at Igor Volsky on Twitter as well. But let's dig in, Jamie, into some of the latest news around a possible deal to preserve DACA. Some action on this yesterday as President Obama was flying back from... Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> President Obama? Oh, President. <laughs> it's okay, Bill's President done it too. Trump. <laughs> I, I didn't see it coming from Trump. you, but... <laughs> you know who did it too? Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She did. President I have that Obama clip yeah, as yeah, yeah. well. Uh, it's President Trump. Unfortunately, President Trump was coming back from Florida. Here he is on Air Force One, responding to critics uh, within his own party here, who had really lashed out at the president after news broke that he had made a possible deal in principle with the Democrats, promising to codify uh, the DACA program or the DREAM Act, and there's differences there, and it's unclear which one we're talking about, but saying that he would pair uh, that measure with border security provisions that don't include the border wall. Trump said in Air Force One, no, there's no deal, and eventually he would still like to have a there wall. There was no deal, and they didn't say they had a deal. In fact, they just put out a statement. They didn't say that at all. Yeah, backing away from the deal, the that, of course, was echoed by... Congressional Republicans, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan coming out yesterday, stressing again, there's no agreement, but saying that he would like to see a measure that includes border security and greater enforcement along the border. You cannot fix DACA without fixing the root cause of our problem. We do not have control of our borders. And so we need border security <laughs> and enforcement as part of any agreement. I think that's something the Democrats are beginning to understand. I think that's something that they're beginning to agree with. Speaking of Democrats, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, described his conver that, that dinner, that conversation that he had with uh, President Trump this way. It was a very, very positive step for the president to commit to DACA protections without insisting on the inclusion of or even a debate about border wall. Now, the question here is going to be one really of organizing, because we're in a place where Democrats, Republicans all want to see some kind of compromise that pairs either DREAM, the DREAM Act, which would cover and provide protections for more DREAMers than the current DACA or now the rescinded DACA program. They want to see a deal that includes that with some level of border security provisions, whether it be more scanners or drones or more inspectors, things that are short of uh, building the wall, which is both both uh, super expensive and ineffective, um, and also short of interior enforcement. Uh, you can probably get a deal because you have certainly enough votes in the Senate for something like that. And you could probably pull together enough votes in the House if 
Paul Ryan puts a measure on the floor, uh, one that doesn't have the overwhelming support, the majority support of the Republican caucus. So you can get something over the finish line um, with enough Democratic votes. Now, the question is, uh, how does this dynamic play out between congressional leadership, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, uh, and uh, uh, and Trump and the Democrats that are now having this bizarre, probably short-lived love affair, because what we've seen in immigration deals past is congressional leadership can squash a deal, and they could do that rather easily. They can add poison pills to otherwise acceptable pieces of legislation that would prevent Democrats from voting on them. So if they were to take an agreement that everybody broadly agrees to, this idea of DACA and border security, and add something like broader and broader deportation um, enforcement currently for, for people who are currently in this country, that would probably be a poison pill that Democrats simply wouldn't be able to vote for. And then you would, in that way, kill a compromise. It's something that hardliners in the House and in the Senate are now, I'm sure, trying to to pressure leadership to push for. Um, but it's a real question about how much pull, how much leverage does President Trump have to actually get something like this over the finish line? Because remember, we're like two, 200 plus days or 220 whatever days into this administration. And he hasn't been able to strike any kind of real bipartisan deal. Certainly now he's maybe flirting with the possibility. But the question I think remains is, does he is he capable of pulling uh, something like this off? Or will Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan and the pressure of people like Steve Bannon uh, and the nativist wing, uh, will that uh you know, win over? Will they outsmart the president? Uh, that's going to be, uh, I think, uh, it's going to be a real test for him. It's going to be also uh, a real test for Democrats. But at the end of the day, the dynamic of this issue is is pretty clear. You have, again, 80 percent, more than 80 percent of Americans who think that the uh, young children who were brought into this country through no fault of their own, for, through no fault of their own, and grew up in this country and have made a life and contributed to our communities, uh, that they should be able to stay in America, that they should be able to have a path to citizenship. Broad agreement on that. Uh, so the fact that here we are thinking about what kind of border security provisions we need in order to pass something that an overwhelming majority of Americans already agree on is kind of absurd in its face, but it's certainly the politics. Here, here's the problem, Igor. The problem is, is that Donald Trump is not looking at this in a human lives perspective, right? We are talking about human beings, American people for, you know, maybe not officially, but they are here and they are contributing to society. They are in school. They are working here. Donald Trump doesn't care about that. He just cares about the optics and how it plays to both yeah. his base and in some cases the media, right? He said he called or uh, Chuck and Nancy said they called uh, he called them the morning after the meeting last week talking about all the good press that they got. Earlier in the week, uh someone had asked him about a DACA and he said, "Yeah, you know, people we haven't talked about that in a couple of days." 
It's like, you know, a TV executive <laughs> figuring out the programming for the week. You know, on Monday at 8 o'clock, we're going to talk about DACA. Tuesday at 9 o'clock, we're going to talk about health care. Wednesday, we're going to talk about uh, the border. You know what I mean? That's that's just the way that he looks at this. The human lives do not matter to him. It's all about him and how he plays to the American people. Yeah, no. I, look, Jamie, and this is why I say all of this ultimately comes down to advocacy, because if the if you have a situation where uh, the kind of right wing base can mobilize voices to create um, a situation where the president feels pressured through the media, through the calls that members of Congress are receiving to not make this deal, then he won't make this deal for a president who wants to be liked. If, on the other hand, you have the overwhelming majority of Americans who support the DREAM Act, support DREAMers, uh, come out uh, and really put real pressure on this president, on their members of Congress, um, and drive stories in the press that, you know, I, I guess you would have to give positive coverage to to the president who who uh, uh, who can make a deal on the dream act if that's what you're advocating for but if he can easily be man, be manipulated through these kinds of through the media and through uh, just just spinning a story and making him look good and that's what drives him both sides can manipulate those forces and I think it's up to us to make sure uh, that we're the ones doing the manipulating, frankly, because you're right. That's all the president cares about is the kind of coverage he gets and what kind of stories are written about him, the actual lives, the actual consequences of his policies on, on people and on human beings. That matters far less. Igor, I have some bad news. What's what's wrong? Uh, the president is tweeting this morning. Oh. And not only is he tweeting, he is on a tear. I count at least five tweets. Is this about our show? Jamie? In the last hour. Yeah, he's watching BP show and just tearing into you. Uh, no, he was tweeting about the London terrorist attack. If you're just joining us, there was a terrorist attack on the London Underground, the subway system there overnight early this morning. 18 people were injured. So far, no uh, critical or life-threatening injuries. Donald Trump saying, another attack in London by a loser terrorist the next tweet, loser terrorists must be dealt with in a much tougher manner. And perhaps the big tweet on this subject, I'll read that tweet in full. Donald Trump saying the travel ban into the United States should be far larger, tougher and more specific. But stupidly, that would not be politically correct. Donald Trump already seizing, sensationalizing on another terrorist attack, another terrorist attack abroad. I do also want to mention that he's tweeting about ESPN, another story that we read at the top of today's show, Jamel Hill, of course, their African-American anchor who was scolded by her employer earlier this week for tweeting, calling Donald Trump a white supremacist president. Donald Trump tweeting just six minutes ago, ESPN is paying a really big price for its politics and bad programming. People are dumping it in record numbers. Apologize for untruth. <laughs> uh, Igor, I think we should play the clip. So another something else that went sort of slightly unnoticed late in the day yesterday was that Donald Trump was talking about his sit down with Tim Scott earlier yeah. in the week, African-American from Senator South Carolina, from South Carolina, a conversation that was centered on Donald Trump's reaction to Charlottesville, where he said that there were uh, bad guys on both sides. 
you would think that we have moved on from that. Uh, the White House officially announcing last night that they'll sign that resolution that Congress presented condemning white supremacists. By the way, in the note from the White House, no mentions of white supremacists. Uh, here's what Donald Trump said yesterday when it comes to uh, the people on the other side in response to his meeting with Tim Scott. A lot of people are saying, in fact, a lot of people have actually written, gee, Trump might have a point. I said you got some very bad people on the other side also, which is... By the way, you know who those people are who are saying Trump may have a point? They're called white supremacists. That's right. But he cannot those use... The people. He can't use that term <laughs> they, because they might they may have voted for him. Hey, look, and he doesn't want to alienate his base, which includes white supremacists and neo-Nazis. When you sound like a white supremacist, literally parroting their rhetoric about our culture, our heritage, preserving all of that. You remember that Arizona rally from, what, three, four weeks ago now? We were able to make, Jamie, two different videos putting white supremacist rhetoric and the rhetoric Trump uses side by side and they're indistinguishable from one another. So when you sound like a white supremacist and then you push white supremacist nativist policies, then you're by definition a white supremacist. Like this isn't complicated. This isn't difficult. Ray was watching the 60 Minutes interview with Steve Bannon from last Sunday with me earlier in the week. And she said to me, uh, he talks just like Donald Trump. Yeah. Or the other way around. You know what I mean? And and I see Steve Bannon as a white supremacist or at least a white nationalist if we want to, you know, The border clarify. wall is the biggest monument to white supremacy this country will ever see. And it's the policy that Donald Trump and his entire base are now, you know, adv- are, are now saying is still in the mix for this dreamer deal. So uh, you you can't take umbrage at being called a white supremacist if you are both rhetorically echoing white supremacists and you're also then advancing their policies. By the way, Jamie, speaking of white supremacists, Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, uh, was really dressed down by the president several months ago. I love it. Right. There's that New York Times piece headline. I mean, I don't like Trump, but I love that. Yeah. Trump humiliated Jeff Sessions after Mueller appointment. Uh, The article speculates about why Sessions is still in the job and concludes administration officials and some of Mr. Trump's outside advisors have puzzled at Mr. Sessions' decision to stay on. This, of course, after he was humiliated by the president in a private meeting. But people close to Mr. Sessions, and this is key here, said that he did not leave because he had a chance to have an impact on what he sees as a defining issue of his career, curtailing legal and illegal immigration. Now, this, ladies and gentlemen, shows that racism is a real motivating force that you can get through personal humiliation. You can get through being a laughing stock of the same conservative base who you've appealed to for years. You can, you know, be a laughing stock of the nation. You can you can withstand the president humiliating you privately and publicly because you are ultimately driven by keeping black and brown people out of this country and that that motivating force will get you through a lot because at the end of the day as long as you can kick them out of this country keep them out of this country you'll you'll take all that that's the story of jeff jeff sessions that's what this story is about to me that he stayed on despite the the personal humiliation he endured from this president because the motivation for keeping latinos uh, and other immigrants out of this country was so strong 
that 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 ultimately eclipsed everything else. That's the story of Jeff. Not, not to mention keeping poor people and persons of color uh, out of opportunities to to succeed, right? With the drug laws that that he hopes to put in place over the next couple of yes. years. Yes, yes, and that as well. I mean, it's like if you <laughs> if you're surprised that th- that that the, that those. Uh, that those motivations really drive people then like see the history of the United States and, and Jeff you Sessions, will learn how much how 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 racists are motivated to overcome all kinds of obstacles to implement their racist policies and Jeff Sessions uh, and Donald Trump and many other members of that cabinet are all alike they crave power they crave authority I'm not saying that we're anywhere near a dictatorship yet but this is why they wanted to be in charge of this country well, yeah, they want to dr- dramatically uh, reshape the policies of this country and only serve and only see a small, small fraction of the country we really are. I mean, it's a really narrow definition of America when you when you think about it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to get into healthcare, healthcare, healthcare next with Paul Demko. He's the healthcare reporter for Politico. I'm Igor Volsky, sitting in for Bill Press. Stay with us. I've condemned many different groups. But not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This uh, is the Bill Press Show. Bill Press Show, again, this Friday, September 15th, 2017. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. You can throw your producer under the bus this time. That was my fault. Uh, Jamie Benson, look at this. See, look, Paul, we have 2016 here. They're trying to set us back. We won't let them. Although, you <laughs> Trying know, to rehash the election. Yeah. yeah. I, maybe yeah, I want to go back out, to September 2016. Exactly. Some things never change. Uh, Paul Demko, he's the healthcare reporter for Politico. You could follow him on Twitter at Paul Demko. Politico.com, of course, is where you can read uh, his great coverage. Paul, I've brought you here because I really want to talk about healthcare. I always want to talk about healthcare, and uh, now is really my chance because there's a lot happening. There uh, is lot, lot, lot of uh, moving pieces. One of which is the ongoing Republican effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. There's a new bill that is introduced uh, and is now being whipped in the Senate by uh, Senator Lindsey Graham. Uh, Cassidy, what's Cassidy's first name? Bill. Bill Cassidy, thank you. <laughs> I think Dean Heller's on it as well, right? So yeah. you, Ron you, Johnson Ron also. Ron Johnson, maybe Portman. Am I, I'm, just, I'm just naming no, no them Portman. at this point. No okay. Portman. Heller, Portman, Heller. Heller. We, yeah, we got Heller in there. This is a measure that would uh, basically give states a big block grant, take a lot of the federal dollars they're currently receiving through uh, Medicaid and the um, uh, the subsidies that you get, the premium support that you get uh, for enrolling in Obamacare, and sends it off to the states and tells the states, "You guys design the system that works for you." Right? Am I saying this right? You can interrupt me, Paul, if I if I'm mischaracterizing this bill. Uh, states will have a, a bucket of money. They'll take this bucket of money, and then they'll make the decision about do we continue in this Obamacare structure or do we create something else. 
Um, this bill, uh, Paul told me before we came on air to my great horror, appears to have uh, some momentum uh, behind it. So, so where are we now, and, and how likely is it that the Senate will be able to this time uh, pass something on Obamacare? I mean, it's a very, very narrow window. Say that they, again. Very, very. How many varies? <laughs> they did you only get in have. There? They basically have two weeks to <laughs> okay, get something done, and there are huge hurdles to to doing that, as we've already seen throughout this process all year long. It's very difficult to to coalesce around a health care bill that it's going to be you know, messy and difficult and not perfect. Um, so they don't have a CBO score, which they need before they can vote. Um, I think there is probably some uh, parliamentary problems that they're going to run into. Um, I won't get too far into the weeds. But and this issues... is because, of course, they're using reconciliation, exactly. which has certain rules attached to it, and this measure may not withstand that kind of scrutiny. Exactly. So, they're, they're, you know, the, the odds are, are, are still very low, but it does seem like they've been able to build, particularly this week, some momentum behind this. And, you know, if you, you listen to Senate, Republican senators yesterday, they're saying they think that the vote tally is somewhere around 47, 48. So close to 50. But, but Again, to caution, it's like they've always been able to get 47 votes for just about anything that says, you know, repeal Obamacare. It's been the, you know, sort of final three votes that have always been the very difficult uh, ask. Now, Paul, the challenge with these block grants, of course, is that they grow at a pace that is slower than medical uh, than medical costs. And so you have a situation where states are really going to have to make a decision. How do they make up? Uh, for the money they're losing, do they limit eligibility to their programs? Um, do they restructure their programs in some way? Or do they kick in their own dollars? And of course, in a time of tight state budgets, that last option <laughs> seems unlikely. Um, so that's Graham Cassidy. That's kind of the, the Republican effort, uh, maybe last ditch legislative effort. Of course, they're doing a lot administratively to uh, to undermine the law. By the way, yesterday, a Congressional Budget Office report came out showing that all of the Trump sabotage of Obamacare is, is having an impact on premiums. Yeah, I mean, next year, they're expected to go up by 15%. And they cited two reasons for that. One is uncertainty about these subsidy payments that insurers rely on, which Trump has repeatedly threatened to get rid of. It's about $7 billion for this year. So uncertainty about that, and insurers have to kind of price conservatively because they don't know if they're going to get that money. And then sort of dwindling competition. Um, you know, we now have about almost half the counties in the country that are only going to have one insurer selling plans next year. So CBO cited those two things for, for why premiums will go up by about 15% as opposed to like 5% is what they were projecting as sort of the new normal um, before this. Now, Congress is trying to address this. There is an effort led by Lamar Alexander, Patty Murray, that is narrowly trying to tailor a package that would help stabilize the markets, bring back those those cost-sharing payments, cost-sharing CSR, cost-sharing reduction payments <laughs> right. uh, that... Uh, uh, that 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 are the factor here. How is that going? Where where what are the chances of that actually passing? I, I mean, I think it's gone as well as you could hope. Um, you know, there seems to be there's two issues really. Is it one year or two year on on those payments? And and I and I think that they've kind of settled on two years. But then sort of a, maybe a bigger sticking point is how much flexibility states are given in terms of uh, what are known as 1332 waivers. How much leeway they can have in sort of deviating 
coming from the rules of Obamacare, particularly coverage rules. And Democrats are very nervous about sort of any uh, concessions on that front in allowing the, the coverage rules of Obamacare to be scrapped by states. So I think that's kind of the, the key sticking point right now. And we'll see. And I, and I also think that, you know, if the, the Graham-Cassidy measure does start to get some momentum, it's going to make it more difficult um, for, for the Lamar Alexander, Patty Murray effort to go forward because, you know, A, well, I think Democrats in particular are going to be if, if they're seeing a repeal bill going forward, they're not going to be willing to kind of work on this bipartisan basis because they're going to be quite you know alarmed by that prospect. So is Lamar Alexander, would he vote? I mean, he seems to t- be taking this effort very seriously. Yes. Will he, would he vote for, for Graham Cassidy given that other dynamic? I think that's an open question. I don't think we know the answer to that. I don't think he, is, he has been clear about that. So I think he is one of those votes that we don't know about. And why is he leading this effort? Was he, I, I'm, I'm remembering loosely that he may have been like the health secretary of Tennessee or nationally or what, what is his, I know he's on the committee, I mean, he's, he's the chairman of what, the health committee. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think he's he... coming at this very sincerely yeah. and very concerned about the state of the marketplace. I mean, Tennessee has been one of the most difficult, um, troubled markets in the country. You had a prospect earlier this year where I think it was 32 counties um, that were potentially going to be without any insurance options. Um, You've had uh, just big problems there um, throughout the last four years. So I think he's coming at this very sincerely wanting to address the problem. Um, I think he's also been under a lot of pressure. I was down in Nashville um, a few months ago, and there's, you know, you don't think of these red states necessarily as having a huge grassroots constituency to uh, come out and, and support Obamacare, but it's there. I mean, he was, there were protesters at his office and Senator Corker's office every day um, showing up and, and asking for answers, and I and I, I think that's had an impact. Huh. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> and by the way, he's acting like an adult, and we're like, what is happening? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so unusual. All right. Uh, thank you. That, that was actually very, very helpful. Uh, the, the, now, aside from all of this, there is an entirely different uh, healthcare push that's being orchestrated by Democrats in the Senate who are trying to answer the question, how do we reach universal health care coverage? And it really feels like an effort to strengthen the Democratic platform as they move into the 2018 election, the 2020 election. And it feels like uh, they are really grappling with and thinking about new health care ideas, uh, many of which were made popular by Bernie Sanders in, in his, of course, 2016 run. And so he introduced... Earlier this week, uh, the single his single payer bill that he's calling Medicare for all. Let's just listen to a little bit of that sound. I have no doubt, none whatsoever, that this nation sooner than people believe will in fact pass a Medicare for all single payer system. And finally, finally, health care will be a right for all in the United States of America. That's Bernie Sanders announcing his Medicare for All bill on Wednesday. It has 15 co-sponsors, Democratic co-sponsors in the Senate, including uh, some uh, presidential likely like 
presidential contenders who are likely to run uh, in 2020, people like Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, uh, and a couple of others. Paul, how would this measure work? Give us like the quick guts of the Bernie Sanders single payer bill. Well, it would, you know, theoretically transition everyone into Medicare over a four year period. Um, the, you know, details, uh, especially how much it will cost, um, are are somewhat sketchy. I think the issue you got to keep in mind with this, and that and that liberals uh, don't dwell on and 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 need to remember is there are, you know, half the country gets their healthcare through their job. It's like right 152 now. million Americans. Yeah. And most of those people, even though they know that the system is kind of screwed up and it's problematic, they like their health care. They have good coverage. And the idea that they're just going to simply give it up um, with some hope that, um, you know, the, the government is going to provide them with uh, equally good coverage, I think is, uh, you know, a, a, a difficult prospect. Um, if you think back to when Obamacare was being implemented back in 2013, you had a very, very tiny slice of people, about one and a half million people, who lost their coverage. Um, and that, weren't, that wasn't that even out. very I've, good coverage. I remember that. <laughs> and the outcry was was ridiculous. And I think the media is partially to blame for that. I think we overplayed it a lot. But still, if you're talking about taking away coverage from 150 million people, even with the prospect that they're going to uh, be enrolled in Medicare, I think uh, I think Democrats need to think that through. Now, Paul, is it Medicare or is it a different program? I thought he was putting everyone into a different program and that he's actually phasing out Medicare as well. Is that uh, wrong? Um, I, I guess I'm a little I'm a little uncertain about that. My understanding was Medicare. OK. Uh, what does that transition look like? How does he transition people out of their current coverage? Well, I mean, it, I mean, it's 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 you know, the details aren't very clear. It would be over a four-year period. That's different from, you know, if you look at the uh, Representative Conyers bill in the House, it's a one-year period, which seemed... Uh, previous iterations of the Sanders proposal. Yeah, I think he had similar. two years yeah. at one point. Yeah. So four years, I mean, it's not entirely certain exactly how that would work, but that's the idea that over time you would gradually, you would have a, a buy-in over time. I think it was 55 initially, people would be able to enroll in Medicare by choice and then 45 and then 35, and then you'd move to the, sort of the full transition in four years. And then the other piece of this is that his proposal would offer far more generous benefits and far more generous, kind. Um, I guess, there wouldn't be co-pays or, or cost sharing. Uh, this is different, pardon me, uh, than how single-payer programs are designed and implemented in other parts of the world, that there is some cost sharing that people bear based on the theory that if you uh, pay more directly for your health care, then maybe you won't abuse it, overuse it, and that keeps health care costs down. Now, that is in dispute about how much that actually is the case. I think academics probably disagree. But it, it brings to question the, the point you made about, oh, well, how much is this going to cost if you're giving people these super generous packages? How are we going to find How is the government, that single payer of the government, how are they going to finance that? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll point out, I'm, I'm cribbing a bit from a, a a really excellent piece that ran in The Nation a little over a month ago by Joshua Holland that looked at uh, kind of the thorny details of implementing single payer and particularly Medicare for all. So I highly recommend reading that piece. But one of the things he points out in that is like even Scandinavian countries, which we think of as, you know, these like socialist uh, republics, um, you know, 
individuals pay about 15% of the medical costs in countries like Sweden. So even in these countries that we think of as as single payer, yeah. um, where the government provides health care, there, there is a buy-in from individuals still. So the idea that we're going to have absolutely no copayas for, for doctors and hospitals and emergency room visits and dentist visits, um, I think is maybe needs to maybe you need to think about that a little bit more. So do you have insight about why he included these um, very lavish packages, why he designed it this way, given that the global standard is different? I mean, look, it's the same as 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 the Republicans for for eight years saying, we're going to dismantle Obamacare. There was no, there was no possibility of that actually happening. So there's no, there's no real, real world consequences to it. So a single payer works really well with the base. It's a great political rallying point. And Democrats are not in power. They have no ability to to pass anything right now. So um, you know, I, I think you know, he doesn't have to worry about the details right now. Chris Murphy, senator from Connecticut, uh, is working on his own proposal. He's calling this a Medicare buy-in. We heard a lot about Medicare buy-ins during the health care debate until they were squashed uh, by a certain senator from Connecticut who should not be named. Um, so <laughs> uh, his name is Jolie Ruin. We hate him. Um, so um, <laughs> uh, here's Chris Murphy, who is in his seat, right? That his Lieberman seat that yes. he holds. Okay, there we go. I just realized that. Um, uh, Chris Murphy uh, talking about a Medicare buy-in, which is where, if I'm recalling correctly, Paul Hillary Clinton ultimately ended up. In, okay, he's saying yes. In the 2016 campaign, uh, Chris Murphy's plan not out yet, but how is it different than what Bernie Sanders is proposing? Well, he's t- he's talking about Medicare buy-in at 55, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so, Jamie, soon you too can have Medicare. Continue, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, you know, that's definitely much more of a, a sort of a piecemeal. I mean, I think if you look at the trend over time, we are moving towards. I mean, as 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 brutal and difficult and ugly as it's been we are gradually over time moving towards a universal health care system <laughs> over decades <laughs> and this would be yet another sort of piecemeal step towards that which i think you know if you look at at at, at the at the at the history of healthcare is probably a more likely scenario than moving wholesale to a single-payer system. These huge changes to the system are, are really difficult. But I think you know something along those lines where we gradually expand Medicare or we gradually expand Medicaid are, are something that could push us you know, incrementally towards a, a universal system. Now, what are the general benefits of a, either a single-payer or strengthening Medicare, putting more people into Medicare, how does that ultimately lower health care costs? Well, I think the hope uh, is that, you know, you cut out the middleman, right? We have a private insurance system that relies on these for-profit companies and nonprofits that make uh, both of them, nonprofits and for-profit, make lots of money off of the health care system. And, uh, you know, the hope is, I guess the expectation is that if you cut them out, then maybe you, you could save money. The challenge with that, it's another thing to keep in mind with Medicare for all is Medicare is not simply a government-run system. 30% of Medicare beneficiaries are in private plans. Thank you. Are in Medicare Key fact. Yes. yes, Medicare Advantage. And they also, they also rely on uh, Medigap plans yeah. to, to supplement their coverage. So, so, they're, so you're going to change, you're going to probably change the benefits package if you expand Medicare. Is that right? 
Yeah, I would think so. I mean, that's something you're, you're going to need to— Because it's tailored to a population that is older, obviously. And so if you're opening it up to more people, I would imagine you would need to tweak the benefits package. I mean, yeah. not, I don't know what the Medicare benefits package now is, but the way Medicare is divided between A and B, and then there's C, and then there's right. D, I mean— yeah, I would think so. We're going to need Medicare Part E. Per E for everyone. <laughs> Medicare Part E. There oh, we great. go. Perfect. It, yeah. it, the, the alphabet lines up. <laughs> yeah. uh, that just means it's meant to be. <laughs> that's yeah. what that means. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that, that that's the hope that you, you just sort of cut out the middleman and you save money. Um, how we get there. I mean, the thing is, what you got to keep in mind is the U.S. spends nearly 20% of the economy on healthcare. It's insane. No other country is anything like this. And and dismantling that and changing that is going to be very difficult because, you know, the doctors who uh, get paid quite lavishly, they aren't going to give that up easy, e- easily. So yeah. it's a long transition. The other piece, of course, is if you have either one insurer, a single payer, be that Medicare, be that something else, or if you expand Medicare, that you are strengthening the bargaining power of a single insurer and that that insurer, whoever it is, that payer, whoever it is, can cut a better deal with a hospital, with a physician for a procedure. Because right now we're in a place where we uh, pay uh, incredibly different amounts for the same for the same operation, for the same procedure, just based on who the payer is. If the payer has a lot of clout and can cut a good deal with a hospital, you you can pay less for a procedure. If that's not the case, you you pay a lot more and you get a lot of variation. The idea here is uh, that, and it was the same idea uh, that we talked about during the healthcare debate when we discussed the public option, that you would really kind of allow uh, customers to get a better deal when they all band together. Also, the idea, of course, of of the of the employer healthcare system that large employers have larger cloud and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, it's absolutely a, a great point. Um, you look at areas of the country where, uh, particularly rural areas, and providers have so much power to kind of charge whatever they they want. Um, so that makes it, it, it very uh, it challenging. Um, and I would also point out that um, uh, drug prices, um, you know, that's another area we haven't touched on. But, um, you know, there's been a lot of support, including from President Trump, at least uh, rhetorically, not very substantively, um, to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. And that's an area where we've seen just, you know, extravagant skyrocketing prices. So um, that's something, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done on healthcare costs, um, and it, but it's very difficult and isn't very sexy. You know, you make the smart point about providers being just a little disappointed uh, that <laughs> and possibly lose money in a model where you have a single payer negotiating prices. Does it surprise you to see Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, home to lots of uh, really great medical centers, but also really, really expensive, uh, really expensive medical care in a place of high healthcare spending? Uh, for her to be on a single payer bill, obviously the progressive politics angle makes sense. Does the home state politics make sense? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think back to um, a few years ago, there was a vote uh, on repealing the medical device tax, oh. which was part of uh, you know the Affordable Remember Care those Act. Days and, <laughs> when you know, that's what we have to worry about the medical and, device tax. But Massachusetts, you know, is a, is an, is a center of of a lot of medical device companies, and she, along with some other liberals like Senator Al Franken, um, you know, voted to to repeal that. So you know. She She's not. Uh, she's not unaware of some of the the, the home yeah. state politics. Uh, last plan here. Brian Schott, senator from Hawaii, has a Medicaid 
buy-in plan? What does that look like? Well, I mean, Medicaid has been growing, um, you know, exponentially since the Affordable Care Act um, was implemented. Um, I'm going to blank on the exact numbers right now, but, um, you know, Obviously, that's a program where there is an infrastructure in place already um, that is increasingly a private coverage pl- program as well. Um, you have progr- p- uh, plans like uh, Molina and Centene, and states have been implementing, I think, about 80% of folks in Medicaid are now in private plans. So that would be, you know, to expand that, to open that up to, to other folks above, you know, we're right now up to 138% of the poverty level in states that expanded Medicaid, expand that to, to other folks as well. Does that complicate matters, the fact that you have private plans administrating the Medicare and Medicaid coverage? How how will that, as you're, as you're opening these programs up, will those go away? Will they grow? Well, I, you know, it's hard to, it's hard for me to see them going away. Um, the trend we've seen in both Medicare and Medicaid is more and more relying on those private plans, and they have a huge vested interest. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the interesting things with, you know, you've seen all these national carriers like like Anthem and Aetna and United Health Group pulling out of the Affordable Care Act markets because they're losing money. At the same time, their their government Medicaid, yeah. their government business is growing larger. And larger and larger for Medicare and Medicaid. Paul Demko, healthcare reporter for Politico at Paul Demko on Twitter. Paul, thank you so much. Breaking it all down for us in the Bill Press Show. Quick break. We're back right after this. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right. The Bill Press Show this Friday, September 15th, 2017. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Bill Press. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. We have lots to cover here on what has been, Jamie reminds me, a busy week in D.C. between Hillary Clinton's book coming out, Bernie Sanders releasing a uh, Medicare for All plan, single-payer plan. Adam, he started the show um, saying that it was a quiet week, and I thought quiet, he was being relatively sarcastic. Relatively quiet. I mean, it was relatively it, quiet, right, Every Adam? week feels busy. This, Back me up you know. here. Okay, fine. It was nice Sorry. having you on, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, of course, the president possibly making a deal with Democrats around Dream and DACA. We'll get into all of that and all of the new, all the busy, busy, busy news of the week. But first, this is the full court. Just a couple of other headlines for you on this Friday morning. We'll start with some big news here. Uh, Yesterday afternoon around dinner time on the East Coast here in the U.S., Friday morning local time in North Korea, North Korea firing another missile Friday morning. The ballistic missile flew over Japanese airspace before it crashed into the Pacific Ocean. 
according to South Korean and U.S. officials. It flew in an eastern direction for around 2,300 miles. No damage to uh, anything in Japan. This is North Korea's second missile launch in a matter it's of like weeks. It's like nobody knows how to make this stop. Yeah. Literally nobody knows what to do. It's terrifying. It just keeps on happening. Yeah. Uh, to baseball, just one more sports story, and I promise I won't uh, bore you. The Major League Baseball Cleveland Indians won again last night, making it 22 wins in a row. They've officially set the modern record for most MLB wins in a row, eclipsing the 1935 Chicago Cubs streak. It was a close contest last night. They defeated the Kansas City Royals with a walk-off single in the 10th inning. Final score last night in Cleveland, 3-2-2. Even if you don't follow sports, you have to admit this is a pretty incredible story. 22 wins in a row. That means that they, the Cleveland Indians have not lost a game in a, over a month. Unbelievable. Adam is really impressed. Unbelievable. Both of you guys are just so blown impressed. away. We're just <laughs> blown away. All right, okay. Here's the final story. Maybe you have some more interest in that. The restaurant chain Olive Garden. Mm-hmm. You guys go to Olive Garden every no. once in a while? It's, you know, it's been a while, but when I go home to West Virginia, I sometimes go. Oh, you're from West Virginia? I am, oh. yeah. It is a guilty pleasure of mine. I know it's a guilty pleasure of Peter Ogburn, who I believe is watching this morning. Hey, Peter. Olive Garden, Olive Garden the released Olive Garden. their now annual never-ending pasta pass yesterday. All 22,000 passes that were made available sold out in less than a second. Wait, what are these passes for? Okay, so here's how it works. Each card, which costs just $100, entitles the cardholder to eight weeks of unlimited pasta bowls between September 25th and November 19th. So it's a limited time frame, but there's no limit on how many times that you can go to Olive Garden. You could literally have all three meals at Olive Garden every day. Between September 25th and November 19th, no one would you would any of you guys do this? Would you guys do this? Uh, I, no, I, I wouldn't. No, uh, it, it does I mean, seem sick. I like, but it's a I like golf garden, but um, and I, mean, I will go and like to go when I'm at home. But that's that's it. I think I would do it to like write about it. Yeah, yeah. The issue here is that uh, you cannot give it to somebody else to use. So, so they, they have like, a, like it's like a picture high of security oh, high card, sec- or like if you yeah. go in, it has to be you to use it no matter what. Uh, And finally, I want to play this clip from earlier in the week. This is uh, this is Miss Texas. Okay, so the Miss uh, America pageant was this past Sunday, I believe it was. I want to play what Miss Texas said about Donald Trump. I think that the white supremacist issue, it was very obvious that it was a terrorist attack. And I think that President Donald Trump should have made a statement earlier addressing the fact and making sure all Americans feel safe in this all country. Right. That is yeah. the number one issue right now. Yeah. Miss Texas, right. man. Miss Texas. Texas. Knows more about running this country than Donald Trump does. Miss Texas for president. She didn't win Miss America, by the way. North oh. Miss North Dakota won. First time North Dakota has ever won Dakota. Miss America. On TV and online, this is the Bill Press Show. That's right, Bill Press Show, this Friday, September 15th, 2017. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press, joined now by Adam Smith, the director of Every Voice, on Twitter, at asmith83, and of course, everyvoice.org. Adam, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Great for 
grateful to you for being here. Uh, we have lots to cover uh, because so many things happened this week that uh, we're just trying to cram them all in here, <laughs> including the release of Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened? Yeah. Uh, so have you read it? What I have not tell, read tell it. us what happened. I, I will tell you. I still have like it's a little too soon for me. Still, it's like I need. I still. I just can't read it yet. Yeah, I can't, can't read any it. sort of can't these. Did you guys read Shattered, the John Allen Parts Amy Barnes book? Parts of it. I will tell you the end of that book. It, it brought back some very painful memories. It was. It's sad. It gets real yeah. sad there. Well, the I, I listened to the that two part podcast that they put out from the, oh, that podcast yeah. from the campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh, that the first episode goes through what it was like to be there in the room with her on election night, how she reacted, what she did, what she thought about the sequence of events. And maybe because I was listening to it as it was raining here in D.C., but it just felt like I do not want to be transported back to that time. I I know. And I I do. I mean, I've seen all the excerpts that have come out from it. And the, the things I appreciate is like when she was at inauguration and, you know, Ryan Zinke came up to her and who had once called her the, the um, Secretary of the Interior yeah. and once called her the Antichrist. And she said that to him, said, you know, you called me the Antichrist. <laughs> and he's like, oh, whoa, whoa. Uh, uh. Like, so all these like men that like, um, you know, were, were so big and could criticize her when they, she wasn't in front of them. And then like sort of, you know, fell apart. I also yeah. love that she thought Jason Chaffetz was Ryan's Priebus. Yes. Uh, I kind of see yeah, that. Yeah, they ran, they did not they ran to each other. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I kind of see that. Uh, so, do you, where do you fall on this debate? Jamie and I were having it early this yeah. morning about whether or not, and a lot of Democrats are kind of like, "Oh, why didn't you write this book? Should she have written this book?" Uh, and do you think it's a net plus for us to be engaged in this kind of what happened, why it happened conversation? Yeah. I- I think that it is perfectly acceptable for Hillary Clinton to write a book, and she should feel free to do so. You know, it's Green like light. it's like um, uh, no, nobody told Al Gore to not do documentaries. You know, nobody told yeah. uh, nobody when Mitt Romney said I might run for Senate. Nobody said ah, but you lost once, right? <laughs> like so, it's like I feel like she can do what she wants to do. And, yeah, take that, Bill Press. Yeah, he um, disagrees with you. Oh, he disagrees with me. Well, um, I. I you know, I, I am a little biased uh, when it comes to Hillary, but um, I think she should be able to do what she wants to do. Um, if if, but I think it's also totally fine for people to say, "Hey, you know, maybe don't come." You know, people can do what they do what they want. I'm really tired of relitigating this like primary, and the, I think a lot of it comes back to people still wanting to relitigate the primary and the election instead of just looking forward. Yeah, I mean, there was, a, but I, I'm glad you say that because. It's easy to, I think it's easy to forget, especially for men who are not like subject to this level of criticism in our daily lives. Yeah. So we don't really have to think about it on a regular basis that a lot of this critique uh, is really is really used on her and not on other people who yeah. just happen coincidentally to be men. Yeah. And I think it's given her some freedom to say things that she couldn't say when she was the first woman. Like, But like, what are those things do you think that she has said? Like in the interviews that you've seen, has there been anything that you feel like, oh, Hillary unleashed is like oh. really something I mean, different. I mean, she would not, she <laughs> never would have criticized those members like Chaffetz okay, that's and, true. Yeah. and uh, or Zinke. Or Priebus, you mean? Or, or, yeah, whoever it was. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, she has talked some about um, the sexism and when uh, the the stuff about how when Trump was like on top of her at the debate, how that made her feel. Yeah. It was like that she never would have talked about um other than this, and I think that does still highlight the the sexism that is still here in politics in many cases. Yeah. Like, I would love to ask her, you know, given the fact that she's been 
part of so many different campaigns, obviously ran many campaigns herself yeah. for, for Senate and twice for president. If she were like redesigning the American political campaign system, how she would design it yeah. differently. Like yeah. I think questions like that, I think are, I'm very interested in. I'm far Stand less- up, you creep. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> I'm far less interested in like relitigating the election yeah. or yeah, Bernie absolutely. or she had some surprisingly harsh words for Bernie, though. I was surprised. I was surprised. She said what? That like he um, that she didn't feel that he fully backed her and yeah. that she, I think, was disappointed that Bernie bros still a, are still relitigating this situation. But after she clinched the nomination, weren't as forgiving. And were you as the, soon as I lost, I turned around. I endorsed him. Yeah. I worked hard for him. Right. I was arguing with my supporters at the Denver Convention in 2008 about why they had to quit complaining that I didn't win and get out and support Barack Obama. And I didn't get that respect get from that. him yeah. and his supporters. This is Hillary Clinton, what, on CBS? The View. Oh, on The View, I'm sorry, uh, talking about how she, after losing the 2008 primary, endorsed President Obama. Uh, and Sanders did not show the same kind of passion for her candidacy. I mean, it's a double-edged sword because the. I mean, I, we. I don't want to argue like whether or not Bernie Sanders was a passionate enough supporter of Hillary Clinton, but his supporters did push her on certain issues to the left, and she later embraced those positions. And now we're having a conversation, particularly on health care yeah. in this country, that looks a lot like what Bernie ran on. Yeah, no, I think they absolutely, I mean, she had a really progressive platform. Even if you look at all the issues she talked about, it was very progressive, um, even if uh, people don't agree on certain issues. It was like incredibly progressive on a lot of issues. And, <laughs> we were living this now. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I You guys walked right into the trap. <laughs> I, did I? Did I walk into a trap? Okay. I don't want to talk about Hillary anymore. Enough about that. Let's talk about Steve Mnuchin. Oh, good. A guy we would have never heard about if Hillary had been president. No. He is uh, the Treasury Secretary, someone who uh, pretends to work on tax reform in his spare time, but I think most of the time it just goes on honeymoons with yep. his wife. Yeah. Uh, he executive produces bad movies and executive like Suicide produces, Squad. Yeah, bad movies. Uh, a story broke a couple of days ago that the Treasury Department made a request for a uh, official, what is it, Air Force jet, yes. was it, yeah. uh, to be used by Mnuchin during his honeymoon to Europe. Uh, Treasury later canceled that request, but it's estimated that the plane would have cost taxpayers $25,000 a day. Here's St Steve Mnuchin explaining the situation to reporters. The government has never paid for any of my personal travel. Never. Okay. At the okay. time, my staff wanted to make sure that I was constantly had access to secure communication and secure information. This was one of the things we explored. So they put in a request to consider the use of an aircraft, not so much for just for flying, but effectively it was a portable office so that I could uh, be available. So let's unpack this for a minute. Let's. let's um, so first of all, uh, it's just 
not true that he need that there are no other ways to securely communicate with your office other than on an official like <laughs> you know charter plane right the the government has processes in place so that one if you're out of communication you have subordinates who can make decisions and two that you can securely communicate if it was the case that you can't securely communicate with the government unless you're on one of the planes we'd be having planes everywhere right <laughs> the whole government would be flying on planes and so it's just not it's just not a credible excuse that he made um, and the thing is, he also just doesn't have any credibility on these issues. There's no reason to believe him. I mean, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was this story about the eclipse where he uh, flew to Kentucky on an official government plane, which got a lot of attention because his wife got in a fight on Instagram about it. Um, and he said, no, this was on official business. But it's sort of unclear whether it's official business and currently there's like a FOIA request, inspector general's looking into it. Um, and this is how we know about the private jet, right? Because they were looking into the solar eclipse. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, he had previously he had apologized the Office of Government Ethics when he plugged another movie of his, the Lego Batman movie, which he produced. He said, "Oh, go see the Lego Batman movie," while he was like <laughs> in an official event. And so he had to say, "Sorry, I didn't mean to break the rules and plug my event." See it. I yeah. meant. <laughs> and then, like at the beginning of the year, when he initially submitted his ethics disclosure reform, he like omitted a hundred million dollars in investment. So, like, over the past, you know, nine months, he has this series of, you know, ethically questionable actions. So when it comes to stuff like this, he's built up no credibility and there's no reason to believe him. Okay. Were you going to play something, Jamie? No, I was just just playing this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that gets me about this is that the people who lecture us about government waste and people abusing food stamps and how we don't have enough money to provide people subsidies to purchase health care coverage, then turn around and literally feel entitled to mooch off taxpayer dollars on something as extravagant as having a special airplane follow you around on your Yeah, and these are basically what, you know, over at Andrews Air Force Base, they keep a fleet of these things. And they basically are just like, you know, those private planes you see celebrities take, I think. I think they look similar to that. They're not like those, those like, um, military planes you see with people with the big headphones and stuff on. So are there like, when it comes to something like that, when somebody makes a request for yeah. this kind of airplane, are there regulations that the government follows that say, in this case, it makes sense? Like in what in yeah, what yes. world would I'm it at, actually make sense? I'm not for certain on for, this, but I imagine there are. This is the importance of career government employees, right? Yeah. Is, and also every agency has their own ethics staff. Um, yeah. That reviews these things. So that's so they. The thing is, they got. Um, I don't think. I don't know if this would have been accepted anyway. Um, and uh, there are people in place to like sort of look at these things. That's why they had to make the request. And he couldn't just go out and take a plane. <laughs> take, that would be um, amazing. And the thing is, like yesterday, imagine? he sort of tried to change the change the story. He, you know, he tweeted, um, "I didn't take." the plane on my honeymoon. This is fake news. It's like, that wasn't the problem. The problem was that you requested to take the plane. Yeah. And he tried to move the story to where a uh, different place. Yeah. It, it's, it's just also, there's two things here. That it, One is, you know, it's kind of crazy that in any other administration, a story like that would have like brought down Absolutely. and ended the career of a cabinet secretary. Here it's like, it's kind of a funny story that yeah. we're discussing, but yeah. you know, nothing's gonna happen. And then uh, the other piece here for me is that this is a president who ran on a very populist yeah. economic message yeah. and the fact that his treasury secretary like sees no problem or at yeah. least you know was it 
thought that this was an okay thing to do from a party again who like complains not only about these earned benefit programs but also about like the deficit and the debt yeah. like every chance they get and then yeah. do something like well, this like a republic or any have any republicans condemned any of this uh I, not that i've seen on mnuchin um uh, people like him i think generally, is that how you say I, mnuchin i say mnuchin is it not mnuchin it's mnuchin it's mnuchin is it mnuchin Oh, God, well, let's go Manukin. It's it'll be a fun way of mocking him. Maybe it's Manukin. I've been saying Manukin. See, Mnuchin. I think about it as when when we first heard of him when he first nominated, we said it as we pronounced it as my new chin, Manukin. Oh, I just probably right. That's probably. I just right. remember I, when when we first learned of him, Bill. We spent like a whole week with Bill trying to explain to him how to say it. So I know it's, it's Manukin. Okay, yeah. uh, thank you for that. I mean, <laughs> the, oh, I mean, it, you make a good point about sort of this populist stuff. But the thing is, people, employees of companies often take their cues from the top, right? Yeah. So what have we seen since the beginning of the year? Trump failed to uh, divest from his businesses. He has been uh, actively profiting off of the presidency, going to all his properties. Um, you know, the prime minister of Malaysia stayed at his hotel last week. Um, you know, when uh, the OG said, hey, Kellyanne Conway, you broke the rules. You should punish, she should be punished. The White House said, nah, we're not gonna punish her. You know, you take your cues from the top and what Donald Trump has been telling all of his White House employees is, don't follow the rules, do whatever mm -hmm. you want. Yeah, yeah. So, and so, in many ways, it's like not surprising at all yeah. that this is happening. But you're right; it would be a, these things would be scandals. You know, um, in uh, any other administration, it would be like House Oversight would be doing investigations, they'd be doing hearings. But the Republicans aren't interested in holding these people accountable on these things. So you bring up that pattern of kind of ethical disregard by yeah. the president. We've heard very little about that just because the news has moved on. Yeah. What's the latest though? There were several lawsuits that were moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it is you. <laughs> As someone who tries to get attention to these things on a regular basis, I can tell you <laughs> Here's yes, your chance. <laughs> it is very difficult. Um, so first, a couple things going on. Today, uh, our friends at CREW, the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, should be receiving the Mar-a-Lago visitor logs. This was part of a lawsuit where they said uh, when, the, when the Trump is spending so much time there, it is basically a government office and we should know who's there. And they were supposed to be released last week, but the government said we need more time. And so they're supposed to come today. So we should today, crew should get those, and then they're going to make them public. Mm -hmm. Get a sense of who's at Mar-a-Lago, who has access to the president. Um, so that's exciting. Yay. Um, so we'll see. I Big mean, I, I wish we could get the White House visitor logs, <laughs> yeah. too. But... Um, and so that's there. And the only other big ethics thing that came this week was there was some like hubbub around the Office of Government Ethics um, where there was a memo that they updated saying that for White House staff that needed to do legal defense funds, since they're all uh, caught up in this Russia thing, yeah. that they could accept anonymous donations from lobbyists, which uh, obviously caused an uproar. Um, and it is a weird interpretation of that of OGE rules. Right. And um, it, there was like this 1993 memo that was a little bit unclear, uh, but uh, since then the the Clinton and Bush administrations, Obama administration said, you know, no, we're not going to actually allow this. They didn't actually have to have a lot of legal defense funds in the Bush and Obama administrations. Yeah. Did um, Obama have any legal defense funds? I don't know of any staff that did. You know, in a Bush one, the big one would have been Scooter Libby. Yeah. Um, but in this one, you know, you already have these these Trump administration employees that have I mean, their own that gets lawyers. costly. Yeah. And so the White House did say, listen, we don't plan on doing this, accepting. Nobody set up a legal defense fund. We don't plan on um, people accepting lobby 
lobbyist money um, and if we do Whittle's closeout, which is good. And hopefully they'll actually do that if that's yeah. the case. Wait, wait. So the, the White House said that they will disclose. The White stuff. House said we're working on it. We are looking at figuring out how to disclose this stuff. Huh. Um, I mean, we'll see, right? Yeah. Like they they say that sort of stuff. There's a lot of ethics stuff. I mean, they Trump signed that ex- ethics executive order and then gave waivers to everybody. So you know, <laughs> you never know with these folks until they see what happens. Um, and so that's something to pay attention to as the the Russia Mueller probe heat, heats up and people like Hope Hicks and others end up getting questioned. Um, what is is there any transparency around, you know, what was it last week? I think the news broke that and they made a big stink about this, that the president was donating what a million dollars to yeah. hurricane relief efforts, yeah. given his prior record of promising to donate to charity and then never actually donating to charity. Is there any any way to to track and see if those dollars actually go to So I know reporters are. Funds. I know like David Farenthold, yeah. the Post, they're making sure to regularly check with these charities to see if they're getting them. If they got David the on a yeah. legal pad versus a computer. That's, yeah. He's old, old school yeah. the way that he He doesn't tracks. use a computer? He always, I, all of his tweets both, are like, oh, but... I'm a legal pad with list of charities. Oh, 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 okay. oh, okay. Oh, um, okay. Um, so they're checking that way. I mean, it, the administration could if they wanted to, you know, like, they, like I guess they could next year then release his tax returns and say, here are all the money we gave to charity. Right, right, um, right. Uh, but uh, no, there's not right now. There's not a way short of just calling these places. Got it. Okay, okay. Well, that's good to know because, I mean, I, I saw the news and I was like, the chances of him actually. Yeah. And then the other question, of course, is, you know, there was a lot of concern in the beginning, and I think again, this is a story that that sadly has died down. That I yeah. know you're you're working hard to shine, keep the light on. Um, the sense that you know he's obviously using the presidency to boost his businesses, yeah. uh, to to enrich his family and and grow his empire. There there was all those pieces about him doing a chain of like blue collar more affordable hotels around the oh, country yeah. for his supporters doing, yeah. yeah i'm sure that's moving along nicely um is there uh something underway uh to see how much his businesses have grown since he's been president or how much he's been able to enrich himself i mean yeah. this is i think going to be particularly important as we move into a tax reform tax debate fight where he's pushing the kinds of policies that would benefit his business, the, the LLC pass-through corporations yeah, that he has thousands yeah. of, um, and also, of course, him personally. I mean, there's only a couple things. I mean, one, he will have to disclose. Um, there is a level of financial disclosure that he has to has to do. So, like, next year we'll probably get some details. That'll just show big numbers. So we'll have a sense there. Um uh, but we'll never have the full picture unless he releases his tax returns. Right. Uh, but you are seeing, I mean, a couple of different things. One, you're seeing that uh, people are dropping out of Mar-a-Lago. People who usually hold charity events, especially post-Charlottesville, have been like dropping like flies. They're saying, sorry, we're not going to hold our events Those big banquets. Here. Yeah. But D.C. is the place where the real, the real money is happening is D.C. Hotel. Like, um, saw a story today that the National Mining Association is holding its event at um, Trump's hotel soon. Last week, when that um, really controversial Malaysia Prime Minister yeah. uh, came to town. He stayed at Trump's hotel, um, and you know, with his whole delegation probably making hundreds of thousand dollars for the hotel. Um, and the White House said, "Oh, we have no control over where these people book, but 
I mean, this is one of those things where the message is clear. Like, a lot people know when they come to Washington, if they want to meet with Trump, they stay at his hotel. And I'm sure that when the Malaysian prime minister went to meet with Trump, he said things like, God, your hotel is so beautiful. <laughs> right? Like, this, this guy, he's so easy. Those $20, knows, $20 drinks are yeah, so everyone delicious. Everyone knows how to get on this guy's good side. Yeah. And they know what they're doing. He's like an easy mark. Yeah. Ooh. And is there an effort under underway to, and I'm sure there is, and I just don't know about it, yeah. to pressure... Um, either the hotel or the guests to not stay at the Trump Hotel. Not to not stay. No, there are a couple. There's the there are like the there's the emoluments lawsuits, which is yeah. saying that Trump is violating the foreign bribery clause of the Constitution. Which isn't about not staying. It's about saying that he is violating the Constitution, getting an in-kind um, contribution yeah, for yeah, people yeah, yeah. staying in the hotel. Um, and um, but no, there's no effort saying people shouldn't stay here. The one thing that I'm interested to see what happens is the as part of the conflicts plan, Trump said, uh, we will um, donate any foreign money that the hotel makes oh, to the U.S. Right. government. That's but right. then it was unclear when they'll do it, and then they said to do it at the end of the year. But it's actually when you talk to... Uh, people, uh, when people, when they've spoken with like Trump's business partners and others, they said, "Oh, we're not, we're not separating that." And it's actually <laughs> when it comes to hotels, it's hard to know what they mean by yeah. profits. Yeah. Profit margins aren't all that high in mm -hmm. hotels, and you count in does especially. Profit... I'm assuming new hotels, but like the like this hotel here in DC that yeah, just opened absolutely. up. I mean, and so I'm we, sure they're not yet turning a profit. Yeah, and it's unclear what profits mean. Yeah, and will they then detail? Um, those where they say, okay, ten thousand from or a hundred thousand from the government of Malaysia, ten thousand from Saudi Arabia. How would they detail that? Where they just say, here's a lump sum payment. We're not going to tell you who these people yeah, are. Yeah, and some number that we came up with that you can't check in exactly any, right. in any way. Um, and then you know he announced uh, in the beginning, obviously, that he's kind of giving up control of his businesses yeah. to his sons. Now he's not disinvesting, but he's yeah. you know just letting them. Uh, run the business. How is that going? So the thing is, the one good thing is that Eric and Don Jr. are not the brightest tools in the shed. So they... Um, I don't know why you would even say that. Eric said, <laughs> Eric has said that he's giving his dad regular reports about the business. Oh. Uh, like quarterly it reports. seems to violate the spirit you know what? of one that agreement. Think, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think he knows everything that's going on. I think um, he's getting reports from Eric. Um, uh, knowing Trump, he's probably asking, right? You know, you only yeah. have to know who Trump is. I've watched him for the past couple of years to know that he, it's impossible for him to disconnect from things like this. So I assume that when he sees stories like um, his California golf course is uh, not doing well or that people are laying off um, employees at his, uh, one of his New York hotels, that, he, that bothers him and he asks questions about it. But there's no clear sense yet because the fear from the very beginning, yeah. right, was that he was somehow going to use government resources, government yeah. policies well, to benefit his businesses. We're not seeing that. We are probably seeing like foreign governments, lobbyists using and staying at his hotels yeah. in order to influence Well, him. I mean, he has gone to, to Bedminster, New Jersey, to Mar-a-Lago, to the Virginia, almost all every weekend. All that free publicity. He's gone to yeah. all those places. So that is an example. And when he goes to those places, Secret Service has to go there. Yeah. You know, um, other government employees have okay, to go there. Point. And so, but we haven't seen the the any of the the only we've seen Secret Service spending a lot of money there, mm -hmm. but that's sort of the only records that have been released so far. Um, so that's one way. Um, but even little things like um, when the EPA rolled back a regulation on um, 
uh, this water this like uh, waterways regulation. It's actually a regulation that was opposed by golf courses, um, including a golf association that has members mm. of Trump's staff on it. I so see. it's those things where Trump may not have known that, but it raises this big question every time his decision, his administration makes a decision that could or could not impact his businesses. It raises a question whether he's doing it to to benefit, and that's the problem all along. It's not just um, uh, whether he's actively doing it; it's this perception too. How do you think this issue plays politically? I mean, part of me feels like, you know, the standard for Trump is so low. Yes. He gets to pass on so much. That has to do with many factors. I think part of it is that he's a white man. Yeah. If Obama or Hillary tried to do like a tenth of what yeah. you and I are talking about now, there'd be impeachment vote number 10. Yeah. So. Do you think that the the public really cares about? I this? think he gets a lot of he gets a lot of room, breathing room on this. A absolutely does, and I think that's why it's so important that when we talk about these issues, uh, I say we like me and my colleagues and others looking at this. You have to tie it to like what people care about, right? So yeah. you know, Donald Trump is profiting off the presidency. We're trying to take your health care away. Donald Trump is profiting off the presidency um, and trying to cut his own taxes while making it harder for you. But what's to, the like, argument about why Donald Trump profiting from the presidency hurts me? Or hurts my family. How right. does that hurt me or my family? Yeah, and that's absolutely. It's a very good question. It's a hard argument. You can't. What I find is people do believe in democracy, but that's not the top of mind for them. Right. It's like, right. So they don't you, spend all the time like philosophically thinking exactly about the right. divisions if, I, I that think government things like if have. if the Obamacare repeal had gone through, that would have been a much easier argument to make. I think as we get through tax reform, and they're trying to you know cut ta cut corporate tax rates while doing nothing for middle class families, uh, tying that to to Trump's uh, profiting out the presidency, all that. Stuff is going to be really important. Um, I think we don't do it well enough, and I think that that's that's a key part of this. People um, are going to care about this stuff. People are going to care about Trump doing all these corrupt things if it hurts them. And so far, uh, other than you know, uh, you know, reducing America's like uh, moral standing in the world, isn't like impacting their pocketbooks right away. Yeah, I mean, do you? There was a, you know all those conversations early on, really quickly here about. Uh, Democrats kind of taking a strong stand and saying until he releases his tax returns or until yeah. we have real divisions here, we're not going to play ball. We're not going to, you know, we're just going to kind of really protest in a yeah. in a real concrete way. They haven't really done that, obviously. Yeah. I mean, do you? Do you I think do think that the tax reform fight that should be part of the message on the tax reform fight, but it shouldn't be all of the message. Yeah. Um, you know, and the thing is. For members of Congress, it's also they're you know it's helping their big donors too, and so taking it also mm. from Trump to talking about how you know all these these members are fundraising with billionaires and millionaires all the time, and they're going to give tax breaks to help them. Yeah, well, it's all about the money. Director of Every Voice, Adam Smith, on Twitter at Adam Smith eighty three, and of course online everyvoice.org. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back. You're watching the Bill Press Show. Count me out for propping up Obamacare. Hell no to Bernie Care. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Live video. Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show is where you can watch The Bill Press Show. Subscribe, leave a comment, and of course there's that chat area there where you can uh, sound off and let us know what you think about uh, the news of the day and ask 
Any questions? Also on BP sh- on Twitter at BP Show, uh, and also I'm on Twitter at Igor Volsky. Joined now by Sochi Inahosa. She's the communications director at the Democratic National Committee, the DNC. Uh, Sochi, how did I do with that pronunciation? That of was your fantastic. Name? Thank you. Sochi, Look, you and Bill have got it down. Well, you know, Sochi Igor has a history of mispronouncing names on this program. You don't need to tell those stories. Gabriel De Benedetti Jamie. from Politico. Gabriel Spaghetti. <laughs> Man, I just, you know, it's like in my head, when I see a name that I don't immediately recognize, mm-hmm. my eyes don't read it or process it. Yep. And so then what comes out of my mouth is something that is not at all related to the actual name. Can I add no. one more to the, uh, if we go back a little flashback right here, <sighs> Matt Vasiligombros, formerly of the I mean, Atlantic. really hard. Would you be able to say that? Matt Vagisilgombros. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are challenges I live with, which is crazy because my name is Igor. And so it's like lots of people screw up my name. So the least, you know, I should should be able to like nail this. Yeah. This should, needs to be like part of my, you don't screw this up. The X throws everyone off. People are just like, what do you do with the X? Yeah, what so, do you, yeah, the X you know? is tough. Yeah, it's tough. I'm so sorry, Igor. I mean, what are your trips to Starbucks like? <laughs> oh, they're pretty bad. I normally, I say Sochi, like the Russian Olympics, but oh, at the you. same time, I work at the DNC now, so I can't say that anymore. So <laughs> it's tough. It's, it's tough. And to Igor's Russian, so we're yeah, full circle we're, now. We're full circle. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> Sochi, so let's uh, get into the news of the uh, of this morning, really. Um, the president, you know, we thought, I think, together, collectively, mm-hmm. that we've put uh, this Charlottesville white supremacist thing that the president keeps coming back to. We thought we've kind of moved on. We thought we would, won't hear him do that again, I guess. Is, we have not moved on from it, but we have th- we thought, like, this is over. Yeah. We're, he's not going to... At least at this point, as he's trying to make a deal with Democrats on Dream and DACA, which we'll return to in a moment, we thought it's, it's this isn't going to be the, the point in time where he's going to sound like a white supremacist. Apparently, we were wrong uh, because here he is. Uh, I think this was what on the plane, Jamie. Is that this right? This was yesterday, yesterday, either on Air Force One or coming off Air Force One. This is for the end of the day. Yeah, here he is talking about uh, Charlottesville. His remarks where you remember several weeks ago where he tried to blame both sides and not just the white supremacists. Uh, here he is returning to that yesterday. A lot of people are saying, in fact, a lot of people have actually written, gee, Trump might have a point. I said you got some very bad people on the other side also, which is true. See, to me, the only people who are saying, gee, Trump has a point are white supremacists. Like nobody else is saying that. So, you know, as disgusting as that is, yeah. uh, what are the politics of it here? Like it comes, of course, as he's facing backlash over his effort to make a deal on Dream and DACA. Yeah. So I think this is who Trump has always been. I think people were very surprised when he said this just because they've never heard something coming from a sitting president like this before in modern time. Right. And to come from to go from Barack Obama, who first African-American president, president who just, um, you know, who was you would he would go out after a shooting of an African-American male and tell the country, you know, this could have been me. This could have been my child. This could have been me when I was a boy to Donald Trump who um, goes off and says that there are both sides, right? And this is who he was during the campaign. And we're seeing this is how he's going to govern and how he's going to be our president, which is extremely disturbing. Um, I think that, you know, the politics of it, I mean, he is, the Republican Party is put in a very difficult position right now. 
I think that what you what you've seen from the RNC is pretty much silence. They've sort of defended him and said that, you know, this is, you know, he of course he it doesn't stand with white supremacists. But what's coming out of the president's mouth is something totally different. And we should I mean, it is interesting to see that no one from the Republican Party has strongly denounced the actual president. It's yeah. easy to denounce hate. It's easy to denounce um, whenever they're out there marching in the streets of Charlottesville. But it's it is it is hard to denounce the president, but it shouldn't be that hard. Right. But for some reason, it is hard for the Republican Party to say, no, this is not my president. This is not what I believe in. And, you know, really fight back against him. Um, so you've seen some weakness from the Republican Party when it comes to that. But it also goes into this hate that you're seeing from the president and the Republican Party. And it's also in their policies. Yeah, voting, that's a key point, yeah. connecting into the policies. And voting rights, when it comes to voting rights, yeah. you just saw this last week um, Trump's voting commission on voter fraud, um, a sham commission that met and was out there basically trying to restrict people from voting. These are African-American and Latinos and young people that want to vote. But yet the Republican Party um, is out there leading the effort to disenfranchise. And that is hate. That is hate in a nutshell. Right. So um, I really am hopeful. I I've been very hopeful. I'm losing hope now. But I hope the Republican Party at some point can come out and say enough is enough. Like who have been those loudest voices? I guess Jeff Flake. To some degree, although I don't remember him pounding his chest after Charlottesville. Uh, Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina. John Kasich. John K- K- sort of. Kasich. Yeah, Kasich. Kasich. Mm-hmm. Kasich. Kasich. Who knows? Uh, I but, may have actually said it wrong this time. Yeah, it's Kasich. Thanks. Kasich, Jamie. Come on. Um, the, <laughs> um, uh, the, 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 Tim Scott, I, I mentioned him because he released the statement yesterday con- condemning this framing of both sides, but not strongly, to your point, yeah. condemning the president. Do you feel like as the party moves towards 2018 that that distance will widen between Republicans and the party, especially as he appears to be at least walking away from the party when it comes to this immigration issue? The well, small we're immigration not... issue on the DACA dream, not the immigration issue as a whole? Well, we're not seeing um, the party do that yet. I think that, you know, um, going back to Flake, whenever um, Trump pardoned Joe Arpaio, you didn't see Flake run away from it. You saw Flake say, oh, I might not have done it that way. But he didn't say that it was wrong, you know, and this is in his home state. He understands the divides. And what's the politics for him that there's some conservative nativist voters in Arizona who he needs for reelection? That's the calculus. He he is. um, Yes, he is speaking to those far right people in his party that he does it. and, And I'm sure probably donors, too, who love Joe Arpaio and want a, you know, um, they like the tactics that Joe Arpaio used when it came to rounding up families, and they believe that really they should terrorizing not, they, Latinos across yeah. uh, Phoenix, and they believe that they shouldn't be in this country, right? And that's not who we are as a nation. And I think that Flake had an opportunity in that instance to say, no, you know, the voters of Arizona rejected Joe Arpaio; they did not reelect him. A judge spoke. You know, this should stand. And our president shouldn't be pardoning bigots. Yeah. Um, but that didn't happen. That right. Didn't happen. So I think that it is it'll be interesting to see, especially those Republicans who are up in 2018, how much they're going to speak out against him. The problem is, is that they don't want to upset Donald Trump. 
right? And so they're stuck in this hard situation where, you know, difficult situation where, you know, do you stand by your president who is fueling this hate or do you actually represent your constituents? And it'll it'll be interesting to see. Now, we're in this new dynamic with the president that we've been in for, what, two weeks, where he seems open to making a deal with the Democrats on Dream and DACA, uh, has, has had several dinners with Chuck and Nancy, as he calls them. Here's Chuck Schumer. Is it on the floor of the Senate here, Jamie, uh, talking about uh, his relationship with President Trump? It was a very, very positive step for the president to commit to DACA protections without insisting on the inclusion of or even a debate about the border wall. Now, that's him describing the dinner meeting they had where they agreed to general guidelines of what a possible uh, DACA deal could look like. But here he is also on the floor, uh, I suppose, telling a colleague about his relationship with the president. He likes he likes us. He likes me anyway. <laughs> he likes him. What do you think? Is this to stay, this this newfound bromance between Schumer and uh, Trump? I will say that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi um, are both very good um, at negotiating. Uh, Nancy Pelosi got us the Affordable Care Act. You know, I remember um, I that think it was one. yes. Yeah. You remember that one? That was a big one. Um, and Chuck Schumer is known for um, being able to negotiate. He's a New Yorker. Trump is a New Yorker. I will say if we can get it, it is it remains to be seen whether or not we can get a Dream Act, whether or not we can get protection for, you know, DACA recipients. A problem, I think that, by the way, that Trump created a, by a prob- rescinding the a, law. Exactly. That's, a problem. Or the, the, not the law, the program. The program and the executive order. Um, this, But at the same time, you know, Trump can't control Republicans in the House or the Senate. And we've seen that. Right. He tried to pass an ACA repeal, was not able to do it was frustrated, also did not lift a finger to try to help do that. Um, But then, you know, now he's saying, yeah, DACA, okay, we have a deal. But it remains to be seen whether the far right of this party will actually vote for a bill. My hope is that they do. My hope is that he's able to convince them and say, you know, by no no fault of their own, these children and these um, young people are here. They are smart. They are contributing to our society. They are um, doing everything that they can you know they are they are Americans, and um, but I'm I'm not confident that that's going to happen. I mean, the Republican Party wanted to strip DACA away. This was a campaign promise by Trump. I think that he wants to have it both ways. He wants to appeal to his base. That's why he rescinded DACA in the first place. That's why he put Jeff Sessions out there to do that, um, and that was his decision. Um, and but at the same time, he understands that these are young people and doesn't want to be seen as the man who's deporting young people. But he has to let them in, right? He it he has um he can do that as a as the leader of his party. The problem is he needs Congress to help him do that if he's not gonna do it through executive order. Do you have a sense of why we're seeing I mean, I don't want to call it a change of heart, but I guess a different rhetorical approach by this president in at least playing nice with Democrats? I mean, there's several theories. One is he's looking for a win. Another is that his new chief of staff, John Kelly, has really limited access to the president. And so the president isn't seeing and isn't hearing from the kind of nativist right wing voices that had dominated his administration at the very beginning. I think Trump wants a win. I think that's the main thing. They don't have there is not one thing that they can point to in this administration that is a legislative win delivering for people. 
and you they have the house they have the senate they have the white house there is no excuse why they can't be passing more legislation and doing more to benefit the american people now don't get me wrong i am happy that they didn't have the votes to repeal the affordable care act but it is it is crazy that democrats are the minority right now in every aspect yet donald trump cannot get anything done so i think he's frustrated and i think he realizes maybe i need to listen to democrats maybe they have some good ideas but i'll hold my breath for it (laughs) i don't know what congress is gonna do one little note for this is from a politico piece this morning apparently trump finds it incredibly difficult to make small talk with mcconnell and ryan he went so far as calling paul apparently he refers to paul ryan as a boy scout oh I mean, it's a little bit better with Ryan than it is with McConnell, but he feels comfortable talking to Chuck and Nancy. Yeah, I mean, they're just, you know, it's all it's, you know, it's always been amazing to me. And there's like those are to me the most interesting history books about how little things like relationships and small talk and how how well, you know, you get along with um, with people can really change big policy and and create you know push forward ideas that those are the little things that we don't think matter but really do ultimately matter that just having a rapport with somebody will make you more likely to support a certain policy i think that's right um and i you know and as as i've said before Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are some of the they they are there and they are in our democratic leadership for a reason and that is because they know how to get things done right and I I think that you've seen Paul Ryan struggle to even control his caucus um to con- to figure out what the legislative priorities are push them get them through and get them on the president's desk um as I've said before I'm a little grateful for that in a way because what they're pushing aren't is not good for the American people um but maybe at one point they realize Maybe we should start pushing policies on the economy and health care that actually benefit people and start working with Democrats to do that. Thank you very much, Nancy. Chuck, appreciate it very much. <laughs> uh, let me ask you uh, about this new effort we are now seeing by Democratic senators led, of course, by Bernie Sanders to propose new health care, um, new health care ideas, new health care bills to get us to true universal coverage. Now, there are several measures that uh, are moving. Bernie Sanders has his Medicare for All bill with 15 co-sponsors in the Senate. Chris Murphy is going to have a Medicare buy-in plan. Brian Schatz is going to have a Medicaid buy-in plan uh, or expansion plan. So uh, lots of new, different ideas. What What do you make of that? I think it's a good thing that Democrats are leaning on healthcare. You know, they believe that healthcare is a right and not a privilege for a few. And I think that it is healthy to have as many proposals out there that benefit the American people. Um, I'm a little biased. I worked for Brian Schatz. And so I think that he um, he is doing some great work on that effort. Um, and it's actually really great to see the enthusiasm that's out there on healthcare and for Democrats. I think that, you know, it would be great if Republicans would meet us at the table. Unfortunately, we can't get anything passed unless Republicans come to the table and start negotiating with us on that. You know, I would like to see Mitch McConnell um, really come together with Chuck Schumer to figure out a path forward so that we are able to provide more health care for people, fix Obamacare, do the things instead of repeal. But on the other hand, you're seeing people like Dean Heller 
and the Republicans pushing legislation that would end up taking health care away from millions of Americans. Yeah, so, this, is, this is that Graham Cassidy bill yes. uh, that uh, we, we talked to Paul Demko of Politico about this at the top of the last hour about maybe there's some momentum around this measure that would basically take a lot of the federal health care spending that now goes to the states, block grants them uh, and give states uh you know, less money over time to try to cover the same number of people, which is, of course, the real problem with it. How concerned are you about that piece of legislation? I mean, they have, what, two more two more weeks uh, until the reconciliation instruction runs out. That is two more weeks until they can push this through with just a majority vote. Um, should should people around the country be concerned? Should they be calling their their senators to try to stop this thing? They should be concerned. The fight on health care isn't over. I think that what we've seen this year is that they want to repeal the ACA. They want to pass a bill that um, will not end up will end up costing people more money, um, will end up taking away coverage from millions of people. And I think that we need to keep the pressure on and we need to make our voices heard. The only reason we were successful wasn't because of one single person. It was because everybody was calling their senators and their members of Congress. I think that um, what the Republican Party also realizes is that Democrats are going to make this an electoral issue. This is an issue that is... Um, um, we're seeing it already in Virginia um, for the gu- gubernatorial race. But in 2018, we saw exactly who voted for that repeal bill. Mm-hmm. We are going to hold them accountable. You know, there will be ads. We will make sure that we're spending money towards them because the American people are upset that their leaders aren't actually representing them and and provide and passing legislation that would provide them with more health care. So I think that the you know Republican Party should be on notice in the sense that we will make this an electoral issue. We want to provide more health care for people. They don't. And so I would really caution them against moving forward with that Republican bill. And people do need to make their voices heard. Yeah. You know, the politics of health care is has fascinated me for years. And now it feels like Democrats are very comfortable talking about single payer. I mean, on the Sanders bill, you have 15 Senate Democrats, yeah. many of whom are likely presidential contenders in 2020, now embracing this idea that back in 2008, 2009, uh, Democrats kept completely off the table, uh, not just single payer, but also public option. You know, at the time, leaders like former Senator Max Baucus and Joe Lieberman and um, kind of rejecting those ideas out of hand. What do you think is responsible for that evolution? I think it's people. I think it's what you've heard out there. And especially you've seen great enthusiasm around Bernie Sanders and especially when it comes to young people, right? And I think that people want more healthcare. And I think that we've seen this. We've seen this in polling. Um, I don't, you know, not every senator is going to back the single payer bill. And we're seeing that now. I think there, there is a lot of momentum towards it, which is fantastic. I think that, you know, any any piece of legislation that is moving the ball forward on healthcare is great. Um, but at this, you know, at the same time, I think that there's a stark difference between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to this. Um, And I think that Republicans are really struggling with this and they don't know what to do because they understand, you know, Heller understands that if he takes any health care away from Nevadans, he's going to lose. He is in a very tough spot right now where he is probably one of the most vulnerable Republicans in 2018 and knows that he needs to deliver something, but it can't be taking health care away. And so I think that the reason why there's so much um, enthusiasm and, and effort to really pass something is because the American people spoke out. 
we we were at rallies. It wasn't just, you know, we weren't just protesting the Republicans. We were making phone calls. Um, I heard from Senate offices, Brian Schatz, actually, as well, from Hawaii, a blue state. He was getting record thousands of phone calls every day. That is a blue state, right? And, you know, but the same in Nevada, where we were, we had ads up, they were targeting Dean Heller. And um, his office was getting lots of phone calls, too. Um, So I think that... Um, it's great to see that we're having a robust debate on health care, and I'm glad that Democrats are leading it. You know, in 2008, not a single Democrat running for the presidency supported marriage equality. In 2016, certainly in 2020, it's unthinkable that you would have any Democrat run uh, who doesn't support uh, full marriage equality. That's the kind of evolution we've seen uh, of the party becoming more progressive. Do you think that in 2020 that this idea of single payer health care will become the kind of uh, either I don't want to use the word litmus test, but the kind of new standard uh, that Democrats are going to have to embrace as they do with with marriage and a whole slew of other issues? I don't think that there's going to be a litmus test on any issue when it comes to 2018 or 2020. Um, I do think that um, if. Democrats are leading on this. I think the American people will continue to see that. Um, but I don't think that there will be a litmus test when it comes to candidates in 2020. Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. No litmus test, she says. <laughs> even even Bernie Sanders has said that. So Yes, Bernie, yes, yes. Bernie Sanders has said that. His supporters, though, I fear uh, maybe maybe a different story. <laughs> Bill Press, no, no, all together, yeah, and people like Bill Press, uh, them, them as well. Let me ask you, as we stay on healthcare, you know, we're, we've talked about the legislative efforts to repeal the ones that failed and the ones that are still moving, but the other piece here is the president's ability, this administration's ability to undermine the ACA uh, by not touting enrollment, for instance, Mm -hmm. by undoing certain regulations. That feels like a real threat because I think if we talk about single payer, you have to trust that the government can deliver a health care service or healthcare coverage if the government is the single payer. So if yeah. the test case for that in some ways is Obamacare, which is has a much smaller government component to it than the, the envisioned single payer, this really has to work, right? This has to be a proof yeah. point that works for Definitely. people. Definitely. Definitely. And which I is why they're trying to sabotage it. They're trying to yeah. sabotage it. Yeah. And you've even they're not hiding it at all. Yeah. So Donald Trump has said, you know, he wants Obamacare to fail. Once Obama, you know, he's just waiting for it to fail. He, his administration is taking cues from him, um, and it, it's actually really sad. I worked in the administration for a long time, and one of the things, you know, enrollment was, it was tough, even yeah. whenever we were pouring in resources, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, but once we got out there, especially in Latino and African-American communities, once we got out there, explained to them what it was, helped them fill out the paperwork, do all these things, people were enrolling, and they're like, okay, this is great, right? Um, so it is, we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to get the role. So, the host, the communications director at DNC, I'm Igor Bolsky. Bye! Show.